0: Boy, there has been a lot of news on the tape as it relates to China over the last week or so. Just today, uh, White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro expects the U.S. and China to sign a Phase 1 trade deal. Uh, in the quote, next week or so, you've got that. Plus, Bloomberg News reported uh, last week about China thinking about uh, launching a carrier si- aircraft carrier-sized investment bank to compete against Goldman Sachs uh, and Morgan Stanley. Bloomberg News also reporting... Uh, Just yesterday that China's really thinking about dismantling its great financial wall allowing Western investment banks to come into China So a lot to kind of unpack there as it relates to China. Let's start with the trade deal. We welcome uh, Shazad Kazi, is a managing director China Beige Book International. Shazad, thanks so much for coming to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks Let's just go to trade first. Kind of where do you think we are with Mm -hmm. trade and kind of what are next steps?
2: Yeah, so you know what we've seen over here is you know a phase one trade deal uh, seems like all but a done deal uh, at this point. This is definitely a much smaller deal than was originally being discussed, right? Uh, but when the president first tried to go for a larger deal, which would have from the U.S. side involved uh, far bigger tariff rollbacks than what we're seeing in this particular instance, um, there really just wasn't much support for that. So when as you know people from the White House started calling up folks on Congress, to try to socialize the idea with other. Their business uh, uh, unions, associations, etc. There really wasn't much appetite. So what we've ended up with is a much smaller deal. Um, the upside, of course, on, on that is that a smaller deal is also a little bit more stable. The chances of things falling apart um, for, for this particular, uh, you know, the, the mini mini deal um, are, are fewer. Uh, the things I think we want to watch for now is what happens in 2020. You know, so we do think this is going to get signed, uh, but then you know, what are the factors which may start to create problems, um, you know, especially as we get closer to elections. So uh, if perhaps the the Democratic contender uh, criticizes the president for the fact that this deal really didn't do much for America, much, you know, all the Structural issues were left out, etc. Uh, how does a president react to that? Um, so those are you know things 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 to look out for.
1: When I knew that you were coming in, I, I got very excited because I feel like this is sort of one of the key pieces of 2020 uh, that is is kind of still a conundrum: the question of how much a trade deal will offer a support to the Chinese economy, and how much that uh, tailwind will be offset by the over leveraged sectors. I'm thinking of the housing market in particular that's showing signs of weakness, certain areas of the industrial sector that are tied to the Mm -hmm. housing market, Uh, certainly some regional and small banks. How much is that going to play out in a negative way that will offset the benefit uh, from a little more trade certainty?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, on, on the positive side first, right, this gives the Chinese some breathing room, which they've been wanting for a long time. The manufacturing sector, really the economy as a whole over the over, over the course of 2019, um, has been receiving a lot of credit support. A ton of it was really targeted towards the manufacturing sector, as we saw in our data repeatedly. Um, and, and so this is much needed breathing room for them. But as you said, now we've got other issues. Domestic demand is still pretty weak. Uh, domestic orders are, are still not doing as well. The ordered, Growth itself is actually uh, uh, somewhat slow in China right now. You've got a property market that um, has shown signs of slowing down. Now we ourselves saw the Chinese property market slowing down up until November. Uh, we saw it's a bit of an upturn in December, but you know one month is, is not a trend, right? Uh, so some of those factors remain. If you look at uh, commodities, it's struggling right now in China, which is which is not a very positive sign for the economy. Um, yeah, so so lots of other factors remain. The other problem, you know, you brought up, you know, issues with. Uh, being over-leveraged, one of the things that we're starting to pick up on is is a major spike in firms uh, which are uh, delinquent in debt repayments, right? And this is at a time when credit uh, and borrowing is surging, so that really sets up 2020 to be somewhat difficult for some of these firms just struggling. They're not seeing the growth, they're not seeing the revenues, they're falling behind on debt repayments, cash flow is tied in general, um, yet they're taking out more loans. All right. So given that economic
0: backdrop, is there a scenario from your perspective that China would move forward meaningfully with a phase two type of negotiation, or maybe they just don't have the capacity to right now?
2: You know, I think uh, the, the phase two deal was supposed to be about larger structural issues, right? And, and those really haven't been on the table all along as it is. What we may end up seeing really is that Phase 1A gets done now, and then what we see a discussions towards perhaps phase 1B, where there are additional tariff rollbacks, Uh, perhaps the Chinese make good on their purchases, uh, you know, for agricultural purchases, services, uh, purchases of other goods and services, which, by the way, is going to be very difficult for them to pull off. Those numbers are pretty high. Um, so any type of phase two as we think about it in terms of talking about you know larger structural issues, I don't foresee there being any kind of meaningful progress on that in 2020.
1: And I'm wondering, uh, you know, one thing that Paul mentioned was the opening up of the financial sector uh, in China. We saw that rate move overnight where they mm-hmm. changed the benchmark to a more market-based kind of uh, factor rather than a state-operated uh, benchmark rate, how much do you expect that to really take hold next year? Do you expect, you know, a lot of foreign firms to really make bigger inroads?
2: On on the rate stuff, just the one quick comment I'll make is, you know, who pays the rate, right? Who pays these days rates that are set out there? State firms have preferential borrowing access. You know, uh, interest rates close to zero sometimes, add zero. Uh, so perhaps you have the smaller private firms who end up being, you know, uh, charged, you know, high interest rates in China, or perhaps have to pay pay something closer to the benchmark. Um, so, so some of those moves, uh, uh, you know, might be more window dressing than anything else. As far as firms moving in, I think the proof proof is in the pudding. It's it's yet to be seen. I think it's way too early to tell. The financial sector is so strategically important. For Beijing, um, that the idea that there's going to be, you know, uh, uh, they're about to take a major step back. Uh, it's it's a little bit difficult to buy.
1: And just real quickly here, I'm wondering what you're seeing in terms of the credit expansion, the idea that you've talked about how uh, the PBOC has been pumping a lot of liquidity into the market. Has that been effective? From the preliminary data that you're looking at in December, in reaccelerating the economy,
2: I think what it's done is staunch the bleeding a little bit for sure. You know, Q3 was pretty weak; it was the weakest data all year long. November was even November data was even worse on what we were observing over the Q3 period. Um, so the December upturn tells you that it's done something or the other to help staunch the bleeding a little bit. It has provided a little bit of relief, um, you know. But but has it is it going to lead to a sort of necessarily a turnaround in the economy? I don't. I don't think so necessarily, especially, again, as I said, when we're looking at things like uh, weakness in domestic demand, we're looking at corporate health uh, deteriorating pretty significantly. It doesn't make me very confident about uh, a major economic rebound on the horizon.
1: Shazad Qazi, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Shazad Qazi is Managing Director at China Beige Book International in New York, joining us here in our Interactive Broker Studios. China kind of the key uh, question mark when it comes to certainly commodity markets, which we're going to be talking about coming up, uh, and the optimism in oil as the US and China are poised to sign phase 1A. I'm going to say, of this trade deal <laughs> right. because That's it terrible. is the beginning of a rolling series of agreements, I am sure. I'm so excited to talk about this, Paul satellites.
0: Yes, this is very cool. It's very
1: cool. Well, I mean, this is like what we talk about when the SpaceX Falcon uh, launches. This is the purpose, right, to get these satellites in. And Iridium Communications is a company that has satellites attached to, uh, say, the recent uh, SpaceX Falcon 9 reusable rocket that went up in order to deposit them into space. And we luckily have the chief executive officer of the company, Matt Dash, joining us from Washington, D.C. Matt, I just want to start with how much you seen your business grow as the emphasis on satellites the emphasis on expanding uh the network infrastructure uh has has grown increasingly important
3: well we have a very unique network and we've been in operations now for almost 20 years now that we have a brand new network we've really sort of seen a an even increase in what has been really a very steady and strong growth rate for the last 20 years we've been in operation you know especially since we moved from voice communications moving over to data transmission say to this thing called the internet of things where everything's getting connected we've been really growing on the basis of that
0: uh, matt the, give us a sense of what 5g means for your business if anything
3: well 5g is you know is the next uh, iteration of applications that are coming to all of us around the world and you know one of the key areas that 5g brings is connecting not just people to each other, but, you know, every appliance and car and vehicle and drone. And, you know, despite the fact that 5G is, is very exciting, it still only operates on about 10% of the planet's surface, maybe a little bit more. So the other 90%, whether you're in the oceans and the skies, uh, on a mountain, even a lot of places here in the U.S., you know, doesn't have connections, and they won't have 5G connections. So we're the things that make the bridge uh, to, to bring those applications uh, to the rest of the planet.
1: I want to talk a little bit about your use of SpaceX uh, rockets to get up to space. How important is the private sector in space exploration and in your business? I mean, I just am I'm wondering about uh, what you would be using otherwise.
3: Yeah, when we when we selected our launch program 10 years ago, we were one of the first, we took a chance on SpaceX uh, before they'd even had a successful launch. Uh, it wasn't as hard as you think because my, you know, it, you know, they uh, for eight launches they wanted to charge me about a half a billion dollars, which seems like a lot of money. But when the next, the next uh, um, available rocket, say uh, from the Russians or from the French or from someone else, was one point two, one point three billion dollars, it was less than half the cost. So it really helped help make our business case close, and I think. Uh, they've really driven down the cost of launch for um, for a lot of us satellite suppliers and have made it more possible for some of these business cases to close.
0: So, Matt, Bloomberg News was reporting, I guess, about 10 days ago or something, that Apple is said to be exploring satellites to beam data to its devices. What does that mean for your business and your company?
3: Well, it doesn't mean too much. It's a different sort of uh, service that they want to provide. And, and many of these new, new uh, satellite companies really are, are supplying very different services than what iridium provides but you know i I think we've been a successful company and i think we've inspired others to believe it's a lot easier to have your own network in space uh they'll they'll realize that it's very challenging and very expensive and takes a lot of time and effort as as has many other billionaires and very large companies who are looking to launch their networks, whether it be Amazon or or SpaceX themselves and others are all looking to launch networks as well. So I I wish them all well. It doesn't really mean much to us. More than anything else, they're probably going to be partners of ours because we can help um, sort of bridge service, especially as they're getting their networks up.
1: So Iridium Communications, you mentioned how it has a 20-year operating history. It was the largest American bankruptcy prior to Enron. How have you recreated the company or how has the company recreated itself uh, over the past decade to be the successful company that it is that provides, uh, you know, crucial satellite services?
3: Yeah, it was, a, it was a challenging business case back in the 90s to spend $6 billion and expect, uh, you know, to compete with cell phones right off the bat. Unfortunately, they put too much debt on the company and couldn't service it. But over time, we've just been able to generate more and more product. Uh, more and more partners to take us to market and have steadily grown at 10 to 20% really on, the, on uh, our subscribers over the last 20 years. So I, I often say we're like a 30-year overnight success story. It takes it takes some time sometimes in the satellite business because all the capital required to make a make success, but we finally got there and really are at sort of an important financial transformation right now. I just hope, hope all these new networks they're launching can go faster in terms of their own success.
0: So Matt, I'm just looking real quickly at your stock chart. Mid-2018, your stock just started a big ascension after being you know, kind of flattish for the prior several years. What was that big event there that turned investor sentiment around?
3: Well, there were a number of things. One, you know, completing this $3 billion new network and knowing that we weren't going to have to spend that kind of money for another 10 years. Uh, it meant that we could finally start generating significant cash. In fact, we're deleveraging now and we'll you know, our investors are starting to see the light that, you know, uh, the dividends and, and other things are possible really with all the cash that we're going to be generating over the next 10 years. So I think it was just anticipation of that, that real financial transformation right. that we've been through, uh,
0: Matt, th- thanks so much. We appreciate uh, your thoughts there. Matt Desch, CEO of Iridium Communications, uh, stock symbols IRDM, based in Washington D.C. It's had a long, long history—a uh, little bit north of 20 years—in uh, the satellite business. Probably, uh, you know, went through that bankruptcy, as Matt said. Uh, you know, probably not the right capital structure for a company that needed to undergrow six billion dollars of capex just to get their network in the sky but the, coming out of the bankruptcy the company uh, is doing much better again just by judging by the stock price and uh, the real future of satellite communications going forward uh, in the country certainly uh, seems bright more competition spacex of course from elon musk and again news that maybe apple thinking about getting into the satellite business
1: We've been talking about it all morning. There seems to be an increasing divergence between the bulls and the bears within the fixed income market heading into 2020. With some, I'm thinking about Priya Misra in particular, seeing uh, lower yields ahead for the benchmark 10 year, uh, meaning lower yields, higher price, given the fact that perhaps the consumer will disappoint, and others coming out and saying, uh uh-uh, uh, we're going to get fiscal stimulus that's going to push up yields, price down. Tad Ravel joining us now, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW with $175 billion under management, joining from Los Angeles. Tad, I'd love to get your view on this. Where do you think the sort of balance lies? What's the bigger likelihood? Yields lower, yields higher in 2020?
4: Well, I guess the starting point with that lead in is to uh, confess that we're probably in the in the bear camp as it relates to returns in the bond market, opportunities in the bond market. In terms of rates, it's our view that we're in a very late cycle type of environment. The Fed's doing everything it can through the kitchen sink and $500 billion behind that in order to stabilize the credit markets in the second half of this year, the repo market being part of that. If, If... if I, If you put a gun to our heads, we'd tell you that in time, you're probably going to be in a lower yield environment simply because economic growth isn't going to support the higher rate environment, and the Fed probably is going to initially try to fight it with every weapon it knows knows how to.
0: so it's interesting, Ted. what is your I guess your fundamental economic backdrop as it relates to uh, kind of supporting your view?
4: Well, there are many. I mean, I, first of all, I think that if if you're looking for signs that you're in a late cycle type of environment, you could begin with manufacturing. That's uh, the data this morning from, from Dallas and from Chicago is further confirmation that the manufacturing sector has been weak for at least the last six to nine months. This is further affirmed in the the data that uh, uh, reveals activity as it relates to movement in and out of ports, air transport type of activity as well. You can look at corporate profit margins that have been declining for several years. You can look at an equity market, which notwithstanding the fact that it's got complete blinders on in terms of the reality that enterprise profits have actually been fairly flat for the last couple of years, nonetheless, stay, has stayed very, very buoyant. I don't view that as a, as a positive sign. I view that as a late cycle type of uh, sign. You could throw the, the real estate market into it as well, the residential real estate market. Certainly, there seems to be pushback from the point of view of affordability. I think that's rather clear in markets as diverse as Manhattan or some parts of Southern California. But luxury markets, generally speaking, I think have essentially run into that to the to that wall. You've pushed prices about as far as you're going to take it. And if you want to put the cherry on top of all of this, you take a look at the credit markets and you look at the excesses in the leveraged loan market as it relates to covenants. This is a widely reported story. It hardly bears worth going into. At this point, you're either deaf to the uh, warnings that are out there with respect to the weak underwriting in the corporate sector, or you just don't think it matters at the end of the day.
1: So if you're deaf to it, that also means you probably did really well this year, because uh, oh, yeah. the the, the <laughs> sort of the riskiest uh, assets within the credit world, uh, particularly near the end of the year, were outperforming. I'm thinking of even the triple is starting to outperform uh, this month. I'm trying to figure out what's going to trigger this, you know, potential late cycle mess and create some kind of opportunity, at least a, you know repricing that people are dying to see? I mean, honestly, they've been talking about this for so long. They've been hating on this rally. What's going to be the washout?
4: Well, you never know for sure. But I think that if, if I were to put a couple of possible catalysts, it's, I think one catalyst that could be put forward would be the China economy, which has been slowing for a long period of time. And while the, the data is always opaque, so you can't really Bring much in the way of precision or clarity to that type of a, of a situation. I, I think that that's been one of the big drivers of global growth over the course of this cycle. So any type of a slowdown there is going to ripple through the global economy. Um, and China, for what it's worth, as um, uh, by GDP component, is about 40% of the emerging market. So China and the EM are, there's a lot of overlap there. A second place I think that it could come from is the continuation of loose fiscal policy in the U.S., I think those that view that as a as a good thing are not paying attention to the realities that you sooner or later run into uh, affordability issues with respect to being able to finance trillion, trillion and a half. And if with any economic slowdown in the U.S., you would expect those tri- those uh, deficits potentially to move past two trillion, You've, you you would be in terra incognita with that, and that would create an interesting push pull in the terms of longer-term rates would want to rise. The Fed would want to fight that because of its impact on the housing market, etc. So uh, the the, um, uh, imprudence of fiscal policy, I think, is a second. And the third one is that it might just happen endogenously with respect to the continuing piling on of, uh, of leverage and credit in the corporate sector with an awareness, or at least an ultimate awareness, that there isn't the ability to finance it. You alluded to triple Cs, yeah, I think that was a good place to look, is that, except for the big catch up, this incredible rally that we've seen in triple Cs over the last month the uh, the, the situation a month ago, if we had this conversation, what I would have said and would have been wrong, obviously, is the equity market's up twenty five percent triple C's are up four percent. Tell me what's wrong with this picture and What's wrong with the picture, of course, is that the market is becoming more intelligent and more discriminating about the kind of risk that it's sponsoring.
1: So, Ted, given the fact that you very well may be right, but it hasn't happened yet, what do you say to clients who come to you and say, God, come on, like the triple C's totally killed it, you know, the high yield bonds, they crushed it. You would talk about liquidity crisis, it hasn't happened. What do you tell them?
4: Well, I think, first of all, our clients, generally speaking, I think understand where we're coming from. But the the basic organizing premise is essentially this, is that rather than try to call the next rally or whether or not corporate spreads are going to move tighter over the course of the next six or 12 months, approach it this way is the way we have always approached it, which is that think of the economic cycle as really an asset price credit cycle, because those are essentially the the key underpinnings of it. Um, Don't talk about it like a, a conventional business cycle. If you think about it as an asset price credit cycle, then think about your game plan being this. In the first third of the cycle, you have a big beta trade. All risk, basically, gets lifted with a very low level of risk, and everybody tells you to stay away from risk. So you're supposed to be an enthusiastic risk taker in, let's say, the first third of the cycle. In the next third of the cycle, you're not so much in a beta-type trade. You're in more of an alpha trade that you still want to be risk on, but be more particular. In the late stage of the cycle, so if you accept the thesis that you're in the late stage of the cycle – you're really supposed to essentially preserve the gains that yep. you made in the yep. early part and not worry about and not worry about the the incremental return because it comes with more than incremental risk
0: right hey tad thanks so much for joining us we appreciate your thoughts on the credit Thank markets you. as yeah. always tad revel chief investment officer for fixed income at tcw 175 billion under management so uh, they got a lot of experience in the credit markets fixed income. Uh, they're based in los angeles and uh, you know tad has always been consistently since we've been chatting with him here consistently cautious as it relates to uh, some of the fixed income markets here given uh, where we are late in the stage
1: Right now, we're seeing the Bloomberg's commodities index rise to the highest levels since 2018 as people uh, survey the land of the trade talks and come back with a positive read. But has the positivity gotten ahead of itself? Mike McClone, who covers all things commodities for us uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us here in our interactive broker studios. Uh, We were talking earlier about how perhaps some of the optimism has gotten ahead of itself when it comes to certainly the agricultural sector. That's at least... uh, according to Karen Eubelhardt, do you think broadly that's the feeling, that perhaps people are a little too sanguine about the risks on the horizon?
5: I f- yes, I feel it's the exact opposite of this time last year. Remember Christmas Eve, you were just supposed to break out the buy tickets and everything and take the risk. This year, I feel it's the opposite. Crude oil is kind of following along, industrial metals, coppers following along the record-breaking stock market, and we have this record trade-weighted broad dollar. Um, that's, that's the dollar is a problem, a push, a problem for commodities, but just following the stock market higher and being WTI crude oil near, you know, above 60 versus last year, this time was near 40 is a risk. I'm fearful of mean reversion for next year.
0: All right. One of the things I'm just reading here, you characterize uh, for crude oil and natural gas the lost decade trends. Why? Why is that? What happened to oil and natural gas over the last decade?
5: The number one issue is U.S. production, okay. just massive. supply. Yep. Yeah. So this is where I like to say. You know, the making America great is really not good for commodity prices because U.S. is a net exporter of crude oil beginning this year. First time since essentially World War II almost. And that's a pressure on prices. And the key thing to look forward to next year and the next decade is, is that gonna change? And I don't see that happening. And then we see decarbonization happening. So there's less demand, supplies quite strong. So that's where I see crude oil and also natural gas. There's just so much natural gas. We ca- I kept thinking demand's going to catch up, but it's not. Now, right now, in the short-term natural gas positions are very short, so you might get a pop. But natural gas is trading around 220 uh, million um, BTUs, and the low has been near two, and the highs has been near three. I think it's more likely to continue to gravitate towards two and lower.
1: Interesting. When you talk about futures positioning, I want to just go back to crude for a second because mm-hmm. futures positioning has gotten increasingly bullish with the net longs outweighing the net shorts uh, by the most, I believe, since March or April. I mean, basically, they, they've been climbing. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you think that they are going to be right, that we're going to see at least a near term pop in the price of crude, even if it fizzles out eventually.
5: Uh, I think we've had it. I look at that as a risk. For, okay. for instance, last year around this time, every, it was way too short. And the market was way too bearish, which is a, I look at it as, okay, bye. And managed money net positions being too long now at the upper end of the range. And we all know the fundamentals. You have to be betting on a substantial cut from OPEC and sustained cut, which we all know is kind of unlikely um, in the big picture. So I don't see it. Also, crude oil is dependent on the stock market. We know we we're up 30% this year. We can do that again. Yeah, great. But we know what that means. It typically doesn't continue that way. So... I'm really worried about crude oil. I'm actually more bullish on the eggs at some point when at, when the dollar peaks. And that's a big if. And Paul and I have discussed that. It's just hard to. Can
0: I ask my favorite up. question? Pork bellies. I lean knew it. Hogs. I was going to say hogs. We're talking we lean
5: hogs. Don't we still have a problem in China? And aren't they buying a bunch of our hogs? We do. But if there's one commodity sector I have never been able to find, not been able to find good, high correlations to, it's livestock I just have not been able to pin down livestock so I can it helps me determine the prices of corn soybeans and wheat
1: there's so many metaphors it's, here <laughs> oh. it's <laughs> like you know I ha- have a hard time roping but house. I have to admit I
5: kind of back off on livestock and, and uh, it's okay. live cattle lean hogs. well I'm long uh, pork bellies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm gonna one day bring in just a plate full of bacon for you to bunch on for the rest of the uh, the rest of the show I am curious though about the potential boost to the ag sector from the trade deal yeah. uh, do you expect China buying to actually give a true boost to some of the farms where we've seen the highest bankruptcy rates in years, particularly in yeah. the Upper Midwest.
5: Well, that's the key sign. It's it's about as bad as it can get. And I think ags are, in the, certainly grains, are in a classic case, of, and we always say in commodities is the cure for lower prices, low prices. So stocks to use globally are really peaking, heading lower. We see that. The key issue, yes, China's starting to get price back in. Which is good. The problem is the dollar is so high and so expensive, that's only so long that we can sustain U.S. grain prices in the dollar at such high levels until the dollar peaks. So we need the dollar to peak or else grains exported from the rest of the world, i.e. soybeans, South America, uh, Argentina, uh, corn, still will have a bit. We will have a problem in the U.S. boosting these grain prices until the dollar peaks, trade-weighted broad dollar.
0: Bitcoin, I'm looking at the year to date chart. Started the year at about 4,000, peaked at above 12,000. Here we are at 7,200. What's just the, the call
5: for Bitcoin in 2020, if there is one? Higher. Okay. <laughs> Bottom line, simply, the simplistic way I like to describe Bitcoin is there's only one key thing that matters, and that's basically adoption. So, supply, demand, price, there's. Really, supply is going is limited. This year, supply increased around 4%, next year 3%, 2%, and it's gonna to continue to go down to zero, who knows when. So the supply is done, and the adoption's kicking in. So the only thing that's gonna- Why to is it done? Can I just go to my computer and print more? Or
1: no, because it's the, the cost of mining is greater than the cost of each Bitcoin, right? Isn't well, that's that part of it,
5: but there's only gonna be 21 million Bitcoins ever produced based on the code, now that's a subject. And there's only seven. There's 17, almost 18 million. There's 18 million now. So there's Who's only going to be 21.
0: Where did that come from?
5: Satoshi Nakamoto, the, oh. the god. And, and all right, all right. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't have asked. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, well, that's the difference between Bitcoin and the other cryptos. There's unlimited supply of cryptos, but Bitcoin is becoming okay. more and more like gold.
1: Yeah, and there is also this mining issue that when it reaches a certain point, it's not profitable. And you've had China cracking down on some of the mining. Uh, anyway, yeah. look I'm, at you with the Bitcoin
0: knowledge there. I like well, that. Well, and I
1: will say that there's another issue when you talk about cryptocurrencies. I was reading uh, about how China is planning their their sort of sovereign cryptocurrency and how that could upend the entire structure. I'm going to just stop right now because <laughs> Paul's giving me this look like, oh my God, what do you do in your free time? Mike McClone, thank you so much for being with us. Mike McClone covers all things commodities plus Bitcoin, uh, for us here at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and he's a frequent contributor to uh, Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the
0: Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.